0: Well, we have clearly rounded the corner, left the Thanksgiving theme, and we are pointed towards Christmas now, aren't we? Yeah, and Brandon helped us to, and the team helped us to kind of get going in that direction. How many of you have started your Christmas shopping? Yeah, how many of you are all done? Uh, You can keep your hands down. We don't want to know about you. You must be firstborns or something. Hey, uh, before we get into God's Word this morning... um, I totally unrelated to what we're doing with God's Word. I, I wondered if I could pass along to you something that I heard that might be a, a great gift idea for your kids, if your mom or dad or your grandparents. Would you like to hear about a gift idea that you might, and, and it's free? You don't. It won't won't cost you anything except maybe a little time in prayer. So here's the idea. And I came across this after Christmas last year, wrote it down and said I'm going to pass that on to the Bible Church family this year. So here's the idea. With your um, husband or your wife or if you're a single parent, uh, just grab a cup of coffee and take your Bible and and begin to think about your kids or your grandkids, each one of them individually, and ask the Lord to direct you to a specific verse or a passage, short passage, that you would want to be committed to just for them, that verse or that passage would be just for them, you would be committing to memorize that verse for the year and you would pray that verse for your child or your grandchild for the entire year. Your gift would be to pray that verse. For example, uh, Colossians 1.10, uh, that you may walk worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Maybe that one verse would be the verse that you would claim for one of your kids. You commit to memorize that verse. And then what you do is you write that verse out or you type it up, however you want to do it. You put it in a card and and you wrap it, if you will. And that's one of the gifts that they would open on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. And then you would share with them what you've done, why you gave them this verse, why this was the verse that you chose, and you're going to tell them, I'm committing to pray that verse for you for this entire year. That will be, church family, the most valuable gift that you'll give to your kids. Right? Isn't that a great idea? That's a super idea. I'm looking forward to doing that with, with Lisa and with our grandkids this year, our kids as well. But, uh, yeah, so that was free, by the way. It didn't cost you anything. Uh, but a great, a great idea. And, and maybe we'll hear about some of the verses Uh, as we're going along, some of the verses that the Lord gave you uh, for your children. That would be a fun thing to to hear about. All right, you ready to enjoy the Word together? All right, I'll invite you to take your Bible then. And we're going to start here. We won't end here, but I'm going to invite you to turn to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And... um, I'll turn there either your note your your Bible and it's great to hear the Bible pages turning that's awesome but if it's a if it's your phone that's great or your iPad outstanding uh, but if it's your phone maybe you could you could silence your phone uh, too by the way we want to hear from the Lord not from AT and T this morning right. Uh, and and uh, if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We can share a copy of God's Word. We keep in the back just for that, and then you'll have your Bible as well. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. Grab that note page out. It looks like this. Grab that, and, and that'll be uh, handy for a, a note or two along the way. And before we step into all of this, let me just ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. Well, Heavenly Father, you wrote the book. Holy Spirit, you delivered it to us by the hands of those whom you inspired. And, and, um, and so we come asking you to be our teacher today. I'd be delighted, Heavenly Father, if you would be uh, pleased to just use me as a mouthpiece today. But your people didn't come to hear me. They came to hear you. They want to hear from you, and that's what I want for them. So we'll ask you to just take these moments, uh, craft the message that you want for us to take away today. And really, Lord, I already know that in part where you want us to be heading by way of heart preparation is is just getting ready to, to gather around the table today, the table of remembrance, to remember the, the death of your son on our behalf, the great gift of his life for our lives. You want the soil of our hearts to be tilled and turned over and made soft to approach that time in the right way. So that's where we're heading today. And. And I would just ask you to fall heavy upon us now, um, protect us from all distraction, and let us honor you as we share your word together here at the Bible Church. Let's we'll say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I ran across something that caught my attention recently. It was a little piece entitled Fractured Christmas Carols. I don't know if uh, you've, you've ever had this happen where you heard a song You thought correctly, only later to find out after you had sung the song many times that you had heard the words wrong and you were singing it incorrectly. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, it's happened to all of us. We have all done that. Well, someone who had more time on their hands than you and I have collected a number of excerpts of well-known Christmas carols as sung by little kids who were singing the carols wrong, but they innocently thought that they were singing the right words. Can you just picture a little boy or a little girl singing with all their might? He's making a list, chicken and rice, gonna find out, right? That's a fractured Christmas song. We three kings of porridge and tar bearing gifts, on the first day of Christmas my tulip gave to me Noel, Noel, Barney's the king of... It. You get the idea. Can you just see a little kid just thinking just innocently with all the gusto they've got singing out these fractured phrases? Well, this morning I confessed to having fractured um, a well-known Christmas song myself. Only I didn't do it innocently. I didn't do it accidentally. I did it quite deliberately. As, um, as Clint was reading for us earlier from uh, Luke chapter 2, the well-known Christmas story and the, 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 the night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he read about a great gathering of angels who sang over the, the fields outside of Bethlehem and announced the news to shepherds that, that, that the Christ had been born. And they sang this amazing song. Do you remember the words? Uh, It's it's Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Well, no doubt you've noticed if you looked at that little note page this morning that I have fractured that phrase. Glory to God in the lowest. I deliberately did that. To the very best and the very and, and the first of all of the Christmas songs, "Glory to God in the lowest." Now, why would I do that? Why why would I do that to this to this sacred moment of Scripture? Well, in truth, I have tampered with the angel's song in order to impress a point upon us this morning, a point that I hope will stick with us all the way. As, as we run up towards Christmas as, as families and as part of the Bible Church family. Glory to God in the lowest is intended to help you and certainly to help me remember just what, an, what a beautiful, incredible, indescribable act of humility the Christmas story really is. Glory to God in the lowest is designed to help us remember the humility of Jesus this Christmas. If we leave today with our spiritual senses heightened to that truth just a little bit more, if we leave more aware of the incredible humility of Jesus as he puts on our flesh and bone and comes to live for us and die for us, and if we leave maybe today committed just a little bit more in our own pursuit of the the, 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 the character trait of humility in our own lives, well, then this will be time well spent, I believe. Before we get to December 25th, we're going to hear the words, glory to God in the highest. We're going to hear them or we're going to read them a number of times, I suspect. And my hope is that as we do, whenever we hear those words, we will, because of the time we spend today, kind of be pulled up short, And we'll be reminded of Jesus, God who becomes the lowest of the low for us so that we can be lifted up to the heights of heaven with him. (laughs) Glory to God in the lowest. Now, you've made your way to Revelation 5, correct? You're all kind of hanging out there now. I've asked you to join me here first as a way to help us gain, I believe, a much needed perspective on the very first Christmas at Bethlehem to help us to see what a picture of humility it really is. Though Revelation 5 is not seen as a Christmas passage typically, it throws a light on the first Christmas that I believe will really be helpful to us. We need it. If you know the background for the book of Revelation, you know that the Apostle John is being allowed to look into heaven and to look into the future. And one of the very first things that he gets to see is the person of Jesus. And as chapter 5 opens, all of heaven is looking for someone worthy to open a book, God's book. It's a scroll that contains the plans for the end times. And there is this moment of anguished silence because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. We pick it up, verse 1 of chapter 5. I'll read and you follow along in your Bible. And then we'll throw some of these verses up on the screen as well. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that is God the Father, I saw a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals, That's Jesus, yes. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Not the angels, not, the, the, not the, the four living creatures, not the 24 elders. No one can open the scroll. And then Jesus steps forward, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Who is this? Well, it's none other than Jesus. Jesus is presented as the sacrificial lamb who died for our sins and who still bears the scars in his hands and his feet and his side uh, from the crucifixion, the lamb who was slain or died. And when he steps forward, all of heaven breaks out in song because he is worthy to open the scroll. Verse 7 and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat, was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and no sooner does this spontaneous praise on the part of the elders finish than the entire angelic realm in heaven bursts out in song verse 11 then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels so picture the angels are encircling the throne of God numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every redeemed person from every age who has placed his or her faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus joins in and they sing, verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Glory to God in the highest, right? That's what this is a picture of. How can we begin to to even envision, if we let our imaginations run wild, how can we begin to envision this moment, the the incomprehensible worship drama of which this is just the beginning of it? Who knows what's yet to come, right? Right? In fact, doesn't 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 say it this way? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has any mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, for those who love Jesus. We can't in our wildest imagination comprehend what heaven will be. We get just a little bit of a glimpse, though, here in chapter 5. One thing is for sure. Heaven is this place where Jesus from eternity past and into eternal future is given untiring, unbroken adoration and praise and glory because he is so, so, so worthy. Amen? And this is true of Jesus before he ever went to the cross and died, right? I mean, this is, this is the same kind of stuff that was going on before the cross that happens after the cross. Now with that picture of Jesus and heaven in your mind's eye, step into the scene that the Holy Spirit gives us through Luke's pen in Luke chapter 2. And you don't even need to turn there. You know the story. And and Clint read it for us. The image of a stable or or maybe a cave in a hillside behind a, a modest stone dwelling that served as an inn on a dark night in in the Judean village called Bethlehem. And there see Jesus once again as the center of attention, but not as the Revelation 5 exalted Redeemer, King of glory, but see Him as 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 the helpless newborn baby, hair matted and wet, cheeks smudged with the blood of birth. See him lying bound in in strips of cloth and lying on straw in a feeding trough, surrounded by a few awestruck shepherds. The same Jesus, the very same Jesus who is center stage in heaven is this Jesus. And he has done the unthinkable. He stepped away from the Father's throne. He stepped away from the throne of the universe. He he stepped out of eternity and into time. He stepped out from underneath the canopy of unending praise and worship, focused on Him so that He could become one of us. Sinless but living among sinners. A, a fellow participant in our human struggle. God is crying a newborn's very distinct cry in a Bethlehem feeding trough. Can we even begin to grasp the enormous contrast between these two scenes, Revelation 5 and and Luke chapter 2, one scene with, with the sounds and the songs of angel voices and, and the praises of all of the redeemed. And then in, in Luke chapter 2, the, the setting of, of silence and smells and an occasional animal snort. What a contrast. Someone might say, but Revelation 5 was, was after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. And I would say, that's true. That is true. But surely no one would say that Jesus, as the Son of God, was less worthy of being the recipient of majestic adoration before the cross than he was after it, right? The scene of Revelation 5 is the scene of heaven before the cross as well as after the cross. It is a scene of unbroken praise, adoration, Song, And that's the home Jesus left. Can we ever comprehend the incredible disconnect between these two scenes, heaven and Bethlehem, and really understand it? I don't think so. Only when you and I, who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, see Him face to face in heaven, will we begin to appreciate the magnitude of Of the humility, the selfless emptying, the glory of God in the lowest that the first Christmas called for from Him. Only when we see Him robed in the supreme majesty of Revelation 5 and be assured, brother, sister in Jesus this morning, if you know Him as Lord and Savior, you will see Him. You will be part of Revelation 5. What a mind-blowing thought that is, right? But only when we see him robed in the supreme majesty of Revelation 5 will we grasp in some measure the wonder that Jesus ever even considered Bethlehem, much less became God in flesh and bone like us. Fellow Christian, the Christmas story is from first to last, the story of an unequaled and never-to-be-repeated-again humility where the first person of heaven becomes the lowest person on earth. And if we don't get this, I would submit to you that we really don't get Christmas. We really don't. Charles Spurgeon, 150 years ago, the most famous and powerful preacher of the time, said it like this, infinite and an infant. And yet eternal, but born of a woman. Almighty God holding a universe, holding a universe, and yet needing to be held in a young girl's arms. What he was saying, if he was saying nothing else, he was saying Christmas is a picture of incredible humility. Yes? And if Christmas truly is this beautiful picture of humility, then Jesus has to be the perfect portrait of humility. Christmas is a picture of unselfish giving, but Jesus is the person who is the ultimate expression of selfless giving in his person, true humility. And no passage in the Bible presents him to us more clearly in the light of his humility then does a passage out of the book of Philippians, chapter 2, which is where I would invite you to go now with me. Would you leave uh, Revelation 5 and turn back into the, to the left for a little bit, not too far, till you find the book of Philippians? And if you're still learning your way around your Bible, um, if you find the book of Ephesians or Galatians or Colossians or Thessalonians, you just know you've got to be close to Philippians, right? It's going to be right there. Philippians chapter two. The, the apostle Paul is writing a really neat church family. Uh, I like to think that it's a family like IBC family, that kind of a of a church family. It's a great church. It's located in first century Philippi in Asia Minor, thus the name Philippians, and it's a church that he had helped to found or to plant or begin. He has moved on now to plant other churches in other places, but his love for this church family has, has never dimmed. In fact, it has only increased. And so we come to chapter 2, and Paul is longing uh, for the unity and the love of the members of this church that they have for one another, not only to be protected and, and preserved, but he wants this love and this unity to, to, to be increasing, be growing even more and more. And he wants this for the Philippians because he knows that love for one another in a church family and a united heart among the people for the cause of Jesus are the most powerful communicators and authenticators of the gospel message. Love and unity make Jesus known. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. The gospel who Jesus is what he has done appropriated into my life by grace through faith that's the gospel the gospel is made known clearly to those who don't know Jesus by the love of the people who know Jesus and by their unity being one now paul didn't come up with that idea the lord jesus presented that idea on the night before he was crucified in in john chapter 13 Jesus will say, they're going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. They're going to know you belong to me if you love each other. And then in chapter 17, uh, on that same night before the cross, Jesus will pray to the Father and he'll say, Father, make them one, make them one, united so that the world will know that you sent me. So so Paul knows this. He knows that it's love and unity that are going to drive forward the gospel. So this is what he says, verse 1, chapter 2, Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, fill up my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, you will bring great joy to my heart, says Paul, if you will stay united in your love for Jesus and in your love for each other. So how is this unified, like-minded, relational love and oneness going to be cultivated among a church family? How is that going to happen? Verse 3, do nothing, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, what's the next word? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, humility is critical. If we're going to love each other well, and we're going to be united in purpose for Jesus' sake, we have got to have this thing called humility alive and working in our characters as a church. And then look what Paul does next. He points everyone to the ultimate preeminent example of humility. And who might that be? Jesus. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or clutched or held on to, but what are the next two words? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul brings to this church's remembrance the very things that you and I have just been talking about. Heaven. He was born, he was in the form of God, that's heaven, and Bethlehem being born in the likeness of men, He brings both of those thoughts together. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he, what's the next two words? Humbled Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we all say, Amen and Amen. No other portion of Scripture church family presents Jesus, His coming, His purpose for coming, or His attitude as He comes, quite like these verses do that. Paul tells us that everything that was involved in Jesus coming to earth and becoming a human being began with a heart of humility. Loving humility, even though He is supreme deity. He humbly submitted to the Father's will and to the Father's plan for our redemption. Rather than trying to make a case for why he should remain in heaven and continue to enjoy all the benefits of his exalted role as the Son of God, he simply says, Father, you've asked this of me. I will do it. He humbly agreed to fully and unreservedly cooperate with a plan that would require that he let go of heaven's glory and accept in its place Calvary's agony. Can we even begin to get that Can we begin to grasp that? In humility, he said no to the adoration and the exaltation of heaven's angels and yes to being misunderstood and rejected and mocked and cursed and crucified at the hands of the very beings that he himself had made. He surrenders his throne in humility, his seat in heaven for a lonely path that is going to lead to a hill outside of Jerusalem by way of a feeding trough in Bethlehem. What humility. Glory to God in the lowest. Yes. But see, that's what divine loving humility does. It it thinks of self-last and the needs of others first what Paul said in verses 3 and 4. You know, as we walk through verses 5 through 8, in my mind, I don't know why this is the case, but I picture a staircase, a flight of stairs. The top stair, in my mind, is the throne room of heaven. And the bottom stair isn't just the feeding trough in Bethlehem. It's the cross, and it's a grave. Watch again the downwardness of it all. Church family in these these verses 5 through 8. Though existing as God, equal with God, he emptied himself. He became nothing. He took a servant's role. He was made like us and in our likeness. He is able to die though sinless. He does die in the most horrible and uh, crucifixion. uh, cruel, there's the word I was looking for, cruel way possible, the cross, and then he's laid in a borrowed tomb. Glory to God in the lowest. Did Jesus know all this was going to happen before he came? Did he? Sure he did. He, he knew this. He, he's, he's God, right? He knows Did did he know that he would become our sin so that we could have his righteousness imputed to our lives and, and we could be in an eternal relationship with the living God who is holy? Did he know that would happen? Sure he did. What was he thinking when he came? He was thinking about us. That's true, Greg. But what was he thinking? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 throws an incredible light on all of this It reads like this. We'll put it up on the screen. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what's the next word? For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did Jesus come reluctantly? No, he came in humility and with joy. He came knowing what would be accomplished when he came that our redemption would come. And for the joy that would be accomplished, He came. He came first to the manger. Then He came to the obscurity of Nazareth. Then He came for three years in the public eye proving over and over and over again who He was. And then He was rejected and condemned to a cross that would kill Him, ultimately to a grave that could not hold Him. Yeah? for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. But it all began, our salvation story began with a love and a humility that can scarcely be comprehended. And even though we may not be able to comprehend it, church family, that's okay. It's okay if we don't get it all. We can nevertheless celebrate together, the love and the humility of Jesus, can't we? We can celebrate the great truth of Jesus coming to die for us. We can celebrate that around this table this morning. We can come to it and by means of the bread and the cup, we can remember the body and the blood of Jesus, the great humility that brought that to us and changed our eternities. And that's what we're going to do now. Would you bow with me as I begin to move us towards the table together as a church? Wow, what a, what a journey you have taken us on this morning, Holy Spirit. We've gone from heaven and, and worship unspeakable to, a, to an animal feeding trough in Bethlehem to a cross outside of Jerusalem, to a grave that could not hold the King of Heaven. What a journey you have taken us on. We're so grateful that you have allowed us to wrestle with and consider and contemplate the humility of Jesus and, and Lord Jesus, what, what can we do now but say thank you in the form of remembering through the bread and the cup, remembering your humility, your great love that moved you to come in joy to be our redeemer. Be honored now as we come with the right heart and a right mind, loving you, loving each other. and we remember. We'll say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.